Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to explore the middleman mentality that is killing American medicine and then contrast it with and then contrast it with how some of the nation's largest retail companies, CBS, Walmart, and Amazon, are playing the long game in healthcare. Whether you provide medical care or receive it, I promise you'll learn much from this view into the future. Let's begin by having you tell listeners what a middleman is. Jeremy, between producers and consumers, there are a cadre of professionals who broker deals, facilitate transactions, and move goods and services along. They are the middlemen, and they thrive in virtually every industry, from real estate and retail to finance and travel services. Banks and online booking sites wouldn't exist without middlemen. Middlemen are the reason a tomato grown in South America makes it aboard a ship headed for North America, passes through customs, reaches a local supermarket, and ends up in your food basket. Of course, middlemen do all this for a price. And among consumers and economists, opinions differ as to whether middlemen are nasty parasites, necessary for modern living, or both. While that debate goes on in lots of industries, there's one thing for sure. Middlemen are plentiful and prosperous in American healthcare. Have there always been middlemen in medicine? Jeremy, no. In the last century, doctors and patients formed personal relationships and they made direct payments. As an example, a 19th century farmer with an aching shoulder would request a house call from his family physician who in turn would perform a physical exam, make a diagnosis and provide pain-killing medication. All that care was provided in exchange for, say, a chicken or a small sum of cash. No middlemen were required, and none existed at the time. When and why did that change? That began to change in the first half of the 20th century, as the cost and complexity of care became problematic for many. In 1929, the same year as the stock market crashed, Blue Cross began a partnership between Texas hospitals and local educators. Teachers paid a 50 cent monthly premium to cover the cost of hospital care whenever they might need it. Insurance brokers were medicine's next middlemen. They advised people on the best health plans and carriers. And when insurance companies began offering prescription drug benefits in the 1960s, PBMs, pharmacy benefits managers, emerged to help contain drug spending. In today's age, middlemen dot the digital landscape. Companies like Teladoc and ZocDoc were created to help people find a physician day or night. PBM offshoots like GoodRx entered the market to negotiate drug prices with manufacturers and drugstores on behalf of patients. Then there are mental health services like Talkspace and BetterHelp, 
sprung up to connect people with physicians licensed to prescribe psychiatric medications. When you talk about the middleman mentality, what do you mean? Jeremy, what middlemen do is to look for a very specific problem and then design what is called a point solution to address it. What they don't do is try to correct the underlying causes. Instead, they put a Band-Aid on the problem to cover it up. These kinds of point solutions help patients better navigate our dysfunctional healthcare system. They make care and treatment more convenient, accessible, and affordable. But the result is that the fundamental shortcomings continue to get worse. This predilection to address a problem in ways that are relatively easy and to ignore the opportunities which are to create a, a big solution, this is what I call the middleman mindset. Here's an analogy. Imagine spotting a lengthy crack along the surface of your driveway. You can have the asphalt lifted, the underlying roots removed, and the entire area resurfaced. Or you could just hire someone to pave it over to fix the, the crack that you can see. Regardless of the industry or problem, middlemen take a patchet approach. And that mindset results in problems festering and bigger cracks developing in the future. And that's what we're seeing in American healthcare today. Can you give a couple examples of what you mean? Sure. You know, when patients can't find a doctor, ZocDoc or TeleDoc, as we said, can help them. But these companies ignore a more important question. Why is it so hard for people to find an available physician in the first place? They don't solve the fundamental problem. They just give you a fix to it while the underlying problem continues to fester and get worse. Likewise, when patients have, uh, can't afford to get drugs at the pharmacy, GoodRx provides coupons. That lowers the cost dramatically, but it doesn't address the underlying question of why Americans pay twice as much for prescriptions as people in other developed nations. Because middlemen don't address these big, thorny, systemic issues, American healthcare keeps getting progressively worse. If we want to use medical analogy, we might say that middlemen palliate life-threatening conditions, but what they don't do is cure them. The middleman mentality assumes that making the bigger changes is someone else's responsibility. And that means it never happens. Are you saying healthcare's middlemen are the problem? No, Jeremy. The problem in medicine isn't the existence of middlemen. It's the absence of leaders who are willing and able to fix healthcare's broken foundation. In fact, it's these entrepreneurial startup companies that are making things tolerable, but they can't solve healthcare's biggest problems. They're just too small to do so. Addressing the big problems and leading the transformation of American medicine from the model of the past 
to what needs to happen in the 21st century is what is required today. It's what medicines leaders should be doing, but they are not. Can you give an example of where this middleman mindset demonstrates itself? Sure, Jeremy. You know, one of the most important places this lack of leadership is exemplified is in how slow U.S. healthcare has been to discard the longstanding fee-for-service reimbursement methodology. This approach pays physicians and hospitals based on the number of services, the tests, the treatments, the procedures they provide. The more they do, the more they're paid, whether it adds value or not. In a fee-for-service environment, doctors are rewarded 50 or 100 times more to treat a medical problem than prevent it in the first place. And when there's a complication, they're paid twice, once for creating it and the second time for trying to reverse it. These incentives, they're backwards, and they frequently pit what is best for patients with what is most lucrative for physicians. Our nation's reliance on fee-for-service helps explain why healthcare spending in the United States has risen twice as fast as inflation over the past two decades, while life expectancy has virtually plateaued during that same period. The U.S. now lags all other industrialized countries in clinical quality, with child and maternal mortality rates double that of the other wealthiest countries. You might assume that healthcare professionals would be mortified by these failures and that they'd push to replace this ineffective payment model with one that focuses on the value they create, not the volume of care they provide. But you'd be wrong. What is the alternative to fee-for-service payments? There are a variety of alternatives that fall under what is called pay-for-value. The most comprehensive is called capitation. Under capitation, groups of doctors are paid a set fee to provide all the medical care a group of patients require in a given year. The fee, the fee is based on the age of the patients and the underlying medical problems that they have, such as diabetes or hypertension. If the group of physicians could provide better medical care and help their patients avoid developing complications like heart attacks and strokes from the underlying problems, both the patients and the doctors benefit. Unlike with fee-for-service, capitation aligns what is best for patients with what is financially beneficial for doctors. However, capitation does require that physicians assume some financial risk for clinical outcomes. And for most doctors today, that's not something they want to do, even though it would give them far more control over the medical practice. And so rather than looking for opportunities to transform healthcare, they embrace the middleman mentality. They opt to be paid through fee-for-service. And in that methodology, they look for small incremental changes that they can implement without personal risk. 
Given the resistance of doctors to capitation, what have the payers done in response? Jeremy, instead of putting in place a comprehensive pay-for-value approach, private insurers and the federal government have resorted to what is called pay-for-performance programs. These represent the very acme of middleman thinking. These incentive programs reward doctors with a few extra dollars each time they provide a specific preventive service. But since there's hundreds of science-based ways to prevent disease and avoid complications from chronic disease, and there's only so many incentive dollars to go around, the actions that aren't tied to incentives, often they go ignored. And as a result, over the past decade, the quality needle has barely bulged. What would powerful and effective leadership look like in healthcare? In contrast to the middlemen who apply Band-Aids to cover up the problems in healthcare today, leaders would step forward to solve the underlying big problems. They would take the risks and accept responsibility when things go poorly, whereas the middleman mentality looks to pin the blame on someone else. They strive to transform how healthcare is organized, how it is reimbursed, and how it is technologically supported. Instead, the lack of strong leadership in healthcare has created a vicious cycle. The purchases of care blame the insurers for high costs and poor quality. In turn, the insurers blame the doctors. Physicians blame patients. They blame regulators. They even blame fast food companies and patients blame their employers and the government. It goes round and round with little progress being made and the future being more problematic than the current or the past. Of course, there are plenty of people in healthcare, CEOs, board chairs, medical group presidents, and so on. They have the power. They have the ability to lead transformative change. But increasingly, fears about the risks of committing to major change and failing leads them to embrace a middleman mentality that narrows their focus. And as we've said, it prompts them to pursue small incremental improvements with minimal risk. I worry that as long as the healthcare solutions remain small, the consequences of an action will grow bigger. Given how rapidly medical care is becoming unaffordable and how persistently clinical outcomes in the US lag other industrialized nations. I don't believe that baby steps will be enough to overcome healthcare's worsening and wide-ranging woes. Robbie, the problems are clear. What can be done to make a difference? Jeremy, overcoming the middleman mentality, that's difficult. And helping others to implement the changes needed in medical care often proves harder to accomplish than people can imagine. As a result, American healthcare will need strong leaders, ones who will step forward, ones who are capable of casting aside this middleman mindset, ones who can inspire others to embrace bold action and seize opportunities to improve quality, lower costs, and increase access to care all at once. Success will require them to use their hearts, brains, and spines 
the three, and of course, metaphorically speaking, anatomic areas needed to drive transformative change. Unfortunately, at present, the anatomy of leadership isn't taught in medical or nursing schools, although the future of medicine, I believe, depends on it. In subsequent episodes, let's plan to return to this topic, and let's dive deeper into some of the specific ways that healthcare's leaders can begin the process of transforming American healthcare. But one thing is certain, whatever they do, they'll need to discard the middleman mindset if they hope to be successful. Let's shift to the aggressive actions retail companies like CVS, Walmart, and Amazon are taking and what they're likely to do in the future. Uh, can you highlight a few of their recent actions in the healthcare space? As you pointed out, Jeremy, these three business retail giants have set up a Wall Street frenzy in recent months with a string of high profile acquisitions and partnerships in the healthcare sector. You may remember from previous shows that Amazon has bought a primary care company, One Medical. They did so in early August for $3.9 billion. That was a month before CVS spent $8 billion to acquire Signify Health and its network of more than 10,000 clinicians who make up both virtual and in-person home visit care. A day later, Walmart inked a 10-year agreement with the world's largest health insurer, United Healthcare Group. Haven't they had a mixed history of success in healthcare? Yes, as you imply, Jeremy, these recent deals have come with heavy skepticism. Critics point to past failures as proof that these behemoth companies cannot accomplish in healthcare what they've done so successfully in retail. As an example, a headline in the Journal of Urgent Care Management asked, is four times a charm for Walmart health? The author's pointing out Walmart's three previous failures to penetrate any significant share of even its own store's retail clinic model. In the industry, have taken hard jabs at Amazon's recent forays into medicine, citing the fact that Haven, which was Amazon's not-for-profit healthcare venture that we discussed on this podcast in the past, failed within three years, as did most recently Amazon Care, a combination of a national telehealth offering with local community-based retail clinics. Given these failures, why aren't you equally negative on their chances? Remember that in the business world, often there's a dance that goes two steps forward and one step back. This is the rule when companies try to enter new industries. The negative analyses, I believe, fail to recognize how successful these companies have been and how every time when they've been successful, there's a certain messiness at the forefront of the process. And that is what I think we're seeing today. After all, you don't become the world's largest pharmacy company, which is CVS, the largest online retailer, which is Amazon, the largest health insurer, which is the United Healthcare Group, or the largest company overall, which is Walmart, by chance or luck. I believe that the critics are making a major error 
by failing to recognize the difference between a short-term move and a long-term strategy. Can you elaborate? Sure. You know, Jeremy, there are two ways to look at CVS's $8 billion purchase to signify. One is to assume, as the New York Times did, that CVS just placed an overly expensive bet on what it called the return of the house call. But another way to look at the deal is that it will serve as an important piece of the company's long-term strategy. To CVS, the Signify purchase isn't the bet on home health. Rather, it's a missing piece, a key acquisition needed for the future. As such, you can't judge it based on last year's or this year's financial statements. What you need to do is to put it in the context of seeking to dominate the future of a $4.1 trillion healthcare industry. And through that lens, an $8 billion purchase price is a small price to pay for easy access to millions of patients. Unlike most of the new entrants into healthcare, primarily the types of middlemen who we said earlier offer point solutions, these corporate giants like CVS, Amazon, and Walmart, they're not coming into healthcare for short-term profit or wanting simply to sell their companies to someone else in a couple of years. No, they're coming into healthcare to dominate all of it. Their goal is to earn hundreds of billions of dollars, not tens of millions. And as such, these moves that have been highlighted in both healthcare and business journals they're just the opening gambits of what I think of as the short game. Can you define the short game? Sure, Jeremy. You know, if your long-term strategy is to dominate healthcare, you can't do that in one fell swoop. You need to take a series of initial steps and achieve various milestones. Only then are you ready to play the long game. And there's no way you will win the long game if you remain reliant on any of the current legacy players. They'll take you to the cleaners. Instead, these retail giants recognize that to succeed, they'll need their own pharmacy, their own doctors, their own clinics, and their own insurance products. Leave one out, and they'll be vulnerable and likely to pay a huge price. As such, Signify for CVS or One Medical for Amazon, these aren't standalone investments. Instead, they're just pieces of what will prepare the companies for the long-term total healthcare package, the long-term total healthcare domination, the long-term healthcare game. Already, CVS offers 10,000 pharmacy locations, and Walmart has 5,100 locations. Amazon, which bought PillPack in 2018, has parlayed it into its own pharmacy offering in all 50 states. So when it comes to the pharmacy piece of the healthcare system, they can all check that box. But before any company can sell insurance, it needs a huge network of physicians. And here there are gaps. Through its partnership with United Health and United Health's 53,000 physicians, 
Walmart will fill the gaps using the United Health delivery system. And CVS plans to do the same through Aetna, which it acquired in 2017 at Aetna's contract with doctors across the community. Amazon, however, is having to play catch up. And that explains why it acquired One Medical with its 800,000 subscribers and 188 clinics across 25 metro areas. Like CVS, this acquisition by Amazon got panned. Uh, critics said that the company overpaid to acquire One Medical, a company that is losing money. From the framework of the short game versus the long game, why did they do it? Let me offer three reasons why Amazon's acquisition of One Medical made great sense. First, One Medical is in the red because it's in an expansion mode and growth, as Amazon knows very well, it's expensive. And healthcare involves acquiring buildings and hiring staff all before the organization receives any revenue. But growth in patients and healthcare providers, that's vital to Amazon's long game. And it's the price the company is willing to pay. A second reason is that for companies like Amazon with $60 billion in cash reserves, One Medical's $250 million loss last year is relatively inconsequential, particularly given the long-term opportunities that exist. By that, I mean, if Amazon can capture 10% of the US healthcare market, that's $400 billion a year in revenue. That's equivalent to the company's current top line. And finally, the company behind Amazon Prime sees fantastic synergies with One Medical's unique membership model. Amazon thinks One Medical's approach to primary care has the potential to attract millions of new patients and thousands of excellent physicians who are dissatisfied with the treadmill pace of American medicine today. Let me give you some numbers. Most primary care doctors in community practice have to care for 2,500 patients. That's what's called a panel of 2,500 patients in order to take home $220,000, which is the average national salary for a primary care doctor in the United States. But with One Medical's $200 a year membership fee, a physician who cares for a panel of patients that's only 1,500, remember that's 40% less, those doctors would earn $300,000, $200 times 1,500 people before a single visit is provided or insurance bill is submitted. That means that one medical's physicians can spend significantly more time with each patient, which is exactly what doctors would like to do. That's exactly what patients desire. Okay, I get the short game. Is there a middle game before the long game? Absolutely, Jeremy. Once these companies have assembled the care delivery insurance and pharmacy pieces, I believe they'll pivot toward making medical care more effective and efficient. Why? Because that's where the money will be in the future. All three companies recognize that healthcare is headed toward a fiscal cliff. Businesses and the federal government can't keep funding ever higher health insurance costs. So instead of pursuing opportunities to raise prices, 
These retail giants will generate profits by eliminating healthcare's many inefficiencies. And it's been estimated that as much as 25 to 30% of the care provided in the United States today is wasted. To understand this strategy, you need to understand what we discussed earlier about how doctors are paid. The current model in the United States is fee for service. Doctors are paid each time they provide services, even when they add no value. This pay for volume approach incentivizes physicians and hospitals to raise prices and do more and more, and explains why healthcare inflation has risen nearly twice as fast as general inflation for several decades. What's the alternative? As we said earlier, capitation is what would address many of the problems in healthcare today. This prepaid approach to medical care aligns the incentives for doctors and patients. It is what would allow higher quality, easier access, lower costs. It is what allow physicians to focus on prevention and avoidance of complications from chronic disease and elimination of medical errors. And unlike the leaders inside healthcare, these global giants recognize the opportunities that exist. They can see the positive outcomes that would happen if groups of doctors came together and were paid in this way and therefore had the incentives to move the healthcare system to an approach that provided more value rather than simply offering higher volume. Unlike fee-for-service capitation would create incentives to prevent heart attacks, strokes, cancer. Unlike the fee-for-service world, it would be able to make the care delivery more efficient by increasing collaboration and coordination amongst healthcare professionals. And a capitated system does exist today. In fact, it's provided through the federal government. It's called Medicare Advantage, and it's an alternative to the traditional forms of fee-for-service Medicare. It's fully capitated, and it's the most rapidly growing part of Medicare with $665 billion in federal spending expected by decades end. How do these acquisitions and partnerships tie into Medicare Advantage? Each company gained an on-ramp by way of the most recent acquisitions into the Medicare Advantage world. Amazon's comes through a subsidiary of One Medical called Iora Health, which is a primary care company designed for patients 65 and older. In CVS's case, it was Caravan, which is a signified subsidiary that's already a major player in Medicare Advantage. And United brings to Walmart 10 million Medical Advantage subscribers. And as we said, 53,000 directly employed physicians who already understand the opportunities that capitation provides. 
What these large corporations recognize is if they can make care delivery, let's say 15% more efficient and effective through Medicare Advantage, that's $100 billion of Medicare revenue that can be shared and it's equivalent to half of the average profit of each of these companies every year. And with 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 each day, Medicare Advantage will become even bigger in the years to come. I get the short game is to get the missing pieces each company will need long-term. And mastering capitation is something each of these retail giants will do in the middle game. What does the long game look like? Jeremy, the long game for these retail giants is to dominate healthcare in the same way that they currently dominate in each of their industries. All of them know that the winner will be determined by which one achieves the greatest economies of scale. You're a businessman, and you know that in every industry, the path to market dominance, it goes something like this. Gain more customers, you gain more revenue. Gain more revenue, you have more resources. Have more resources, you can lower costs. Lower costs, you can make more profit. Make more profit, you can invest in providing even better care, which allows you to gain more members, more revenue, et cetera, et cetera. This is the virtuous cycle that the market leaders are able to achieve. Healthcare will be no exception. To win in the long game, CVS, Amazon, and Walmart, and United, they know they can't be niche players in the narrow part of the healthcare system. They need to dominate in all of it. How will the game play out? Having mastered capitation through Medicare Advantage, I believe they'll then offer a similar capitated product to self-funded businesses. Remember, these are the people they deal with all the time. And the self-funded businesses will be happy to provide that to their employees. And once it's in the Medicare space and in the employee space, it will ultimately become available to just about everyone. To succeed, these companies will need more than just their own insurance products, pharmacies, and physician networks. They'll quickly begin to hire specialists who will be selected on the ability to provide excellent care with reduced complications. They'll look for opportunities to build their own surgery centers and procedural areas. They'll internalize as much of the healthcare delivery as they can. And once they do that, when they have to contract for specific services, their massive size will allow them to contract, whether for outpatient or inpatient care, at a far lower cost than their competitors. When will it end? When it comes to healthcare, an industry that accounts for close to 20% of total GDP, the long game will play out over a decade or longer. As such, what listeners and health policy observers need to recognize and remember is that the recent acquisitions and partnerships, they're not ends in themselves. They're the necessary opening moves towards the ultimate battle. Of course, Along the way, there'll be many potential bumps in the road that could derail the process for any one of them. But given what these behemoth companies have achieved in retail, I believe, Jeremy, it would be foolhardy to bet that none of them will succeed. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast posted each Tuesday. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.